The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. Hello you gorgeous lot and welcome to another episode of the Persistent and Nasty Podcast. Elaine here, how are you all doing? I hope that you're looking after yourselves, staying well. I am, I think, almost fully recovered from COVID. Um, For those of you who have had it, um, I feel you. It's not really just a bad cold, it's worse than that. But anyway, I am feeling much better. Today, Louise and I talk... Chalk? Today, Louise and I talk with the incredible Amy Quinn. I completely fell in love with Amy and you will too. I can't wait for you all to hear this episode. It is uplifting, inspiring, joyous, joyful, fun and um, I cry, Louise cries and uh, just utter beauty and the gift of life and remembering that it is a gift and that we're all here. Um, Amy is a Scottish actor, writer, singer and intersectional feminist and she also happens to be a cancer survivor. Um, So just a trigger warning for some of you that might find that difficult but it's a really uplifting episode but I would suggest maybe having some hankies to hand. You can follow us on all social media, Twitter at Persistent Nasty, Instagram at Persistent and Nasty, Facebook Persistent and Nasty, send us an email to persistentandnasty at gmail.com. You can also follow Louise and I on social media. Louise is Ms. Louise Oliver on both Twitter and Instagram. I am at Elaine Stirrett on Twitter and at Elaine.Stirrett on Instagram. For today's episode, oh, I suggest whatever the hell you want. Um, go for it, have some champagne, have tea, coffee, hot chocolate. Oh, also just a little um, FYI, there is some quite a lot of swearing in today's episode and it is clear that I definitely have the brain fog left over from um, COVID as I thought I hadn't been swearing that much, yet on listening back, I I did swear a lot. There was also um, the C-bomb dropped, so for those of you uh, who are not a big fan of that, just pre-warning. Anyway, back to what you can have to drink. I would say, oh, I said hot chocolate, I said beer, wine, a lovely fruit juice of some kind, like maybe a passion fruit, pineapple, but you know, you can always just have a good old cup of tea. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Self-deprecation is my only humour, I mean, that's all I've got. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a Scottish thing as well, it's like, yeah, totally. Oh. I'll put myself down quickly before anybody else does it. But no, it's not allowed. It's not allowed in the Persistent oh. NASA podcast. Okay. And until you that, Amy Quinn, welcome to the Persistent NASA podcast. Hello. I'm so excited. Yay. We're really excited to have you. Um, I need to cough. Continue on. 
Fair. That's a fair thing. It's a, it's a problem of the <laughs> cultural moment. <laughs> I wish that you could see her because that was special. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a good one. It's um that was a cl- that was classy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, stay classy. Um, Amy, yes, we're really excited to have you on, and just so excited for people to hear your and I can't I can't believe I'm about to use this word. I'm going to use the J word. Uh, oh, she's journey. Doing it. <laughs> journey. My journey. Your I feel journey. like I should be singing the climb by Miley Cyrus at this point. Your your journey, the J word, yeah, the J word. Hashtag don't stop believing. <laughs> Yeah. But before we get there, um, let's do a little potted history of you so you, our listeners know all about you. Right. Um, it's a crazy life. Um, so I'm from Springburn in Glasgow, um, the scheme, so very working class. Um, <laughs> I grew up um, kind of normal and then my mum got MS, so I became kind of a young carer for her. And now my little sister, bless her, who's only 15, she's her young carer now and she's like the best person ever. But anyway, side note, just a shout out to my sister. Um, so then I went do to it, uni. Do it. Shout out your sister, Great. like. She's stunning. Um, but yeah, then I went to uni and I studied business, which, so you're probably like, how did this happen? Um, so yeah, I don't know. Um, everyone was like, are you going to do theatre? And I was like, <clears throat> sorry, my voice. Are you going to do theatre? And I was like, hmm. I probably won't make any money that way and I don't want to live in Springburn forever was my plan so I was like I'll do business I just like picked something you know that's probably the most sensible response to <laughs> are you gonna do theatre I've ever heard actually I wouldn't be money I wouldn't make any money I'll be poor um so plot twist I'm poor now but anyway we'll get there um so I studied it's all right so am I it's all good don't worry about it. <laughs> we all are um so yeah, I did business and then it was going well my first year. I was loving it and, um, well, not so much the course, kind of hated business, but was loving uni. And then I found out I had cancer, which was a bit of a wild, like, oh, okay, that's okay, that's fine. I'm 19, what am I going to do? Um, so that was a journey. There we go, the J word. Um, so I made my way out of cancer somehow. Um, it was ovarian cancer stage three, so it was pretty problematic. So Anyway, I had to get my ovaries taken out. So I started my menopause before my mum as a teenager. It was a lot. Um, <laughs> but luckily I survived cancer, so that's all that matters. Um, went through the whole journey of, I keep saying journey now, oh my God, of menopause. <laughs> that's then, my fault, I'm sorry. I know, like, what have you done? <laughs> um, the menopause times. Um, and then, then I found out I had pelvic adhesive disease, which was another wee sort of spanner in the works. Um, so basically my tummy had been really bad ever since my chemo and initially they were like, ah, it's probably the chemo. And then for years it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And then they found out that it was pelvic adhesive disease, which is basically just a quick way to explain it is that everything, when it grew back together with all the scar tissue, it all got stuck together. So it doesn't move properly. Like so much, I get bad jobbies. That's all it means. Bad jobbies. Um, so yes, often and bad jobbies. And now I'm getting a stoma bag. So that's pretty much me up to speed. Oh, wait, I forgot. I've studied theatre in there. That's hilarious. Uh, back, back we go. This is why I can't speak. Um, yes. After the cancer, I was like, do you know what? I'm going to do what I want to do, even though I'm going to be poor. So I did theatre. So that's quite an important part of that story. That's pretty key. So yes, I'm an actor who's getting a stolen bag. That's us up to speed. Oh. Wow. 
I mean, thanks. That may be the best introduction <laughs> to a guest by a guest oh. that we've ever had. Um, Quite the summary. Quite yeah. the summary. We'll just need to copy and paste it so we put theatre in the middle there somewhere. <laughs> we can, well, it's all right, we can circle back, we've got plenty of time. Yeah, so, I can blame my menopause though, so it's fine. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things to start with, <laughs> that I, but I think first of all, the first thing that I want to ask you was when, was you, when were you first introduced to drama, theatre, all of um, the above? So, weirdly, um... Apart from watching musicals with my grand growing up, like we used to watch like Brigadoon and Meet Me in St. Louis, I didn't really have any contact with acting or musical theatre. I think, I mean, it's an easy thing to blame, but I honestly think if you're from a working class family, nobody's caring about theatre really, or they weren't then. That's a better way to put it. They are now, but they weren't then. Uh, makes me sound so old, but yeah. Um, no, I don't think it does though. I think that's you know really, what I mean. I think it's really important. It I wasn't think, that long ago. Yeah, no, I. Yeah. I I mean, and it's still an issue. It is still yeah, a thing yeah. of like, that's not that's not for us because how can we make room for that in a life that's already quite, you know, it's just not a priority. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. a hobby for middle class people. So, in my opinion, and I teach at a drama school now, and they're an okay price. But even then, my little sister was like, "Hey, do you think maybe I could join drama because she's starting to get into it?" And um, I was like, "Yeah, I'll have a wee look." And then I was like. You, I can't. Your dad can't afford it. My mum and dad can't afford it, and I've not got the money to help, so she can't go. And that's just the same story as it was before. It's easier to do much cheaper hobbies like going kicking a ball out in the back, like against the bins. That was what you did. It wasn't theatre. So um, for me, it was it was so weird. It was just a friend was going to an audition for an Amdram club in Glasgow, um, and she was like, "Do you want to come?" Like, because I did sing a bit, like just for fun with my pals, and they used to be like, "You're a good singer." Um, and she was like, is that movie like Footloose, right? Because I'd seen that and I was like, oh, that's so cool. Um, yeah, I'll just come and see what it's like. And obviously I was mad, overwhelmed, like even though it's like only Amdram, although I think Amdram can be brilliant. It just depends. Um, it, it felt like the biggest thing ever to me. Like it felt like an addition for like a movie or something because I'd never been in that world. Uh, somehow I got in and then that's where it, it came from there. And I mean, I was 16 at that point, so it was quite late in life. Um, compared to a lot of people, normally it's you're a kid and you get into theatre, but I was actually 16. So here we go. Do you know what's funny? You said uh, the only Amdram thing. I think that's another uh, little symptom of elitism and stuff like that. Say something, mm-hmm. and it's programmed into it. It's like, you know, I've had I've had an agency, don't put any Amdram on your CV. Like, yeah. don't let anybody know you ever set foot in an Amdram club. I'm like, where do you think Wild. young people and people starting out, where do you think we get, exp- how do you think we get mm-hmm. exposed to it? Like, it's such a ludicrous concept, particularly when you think about the scale at which some of these Amdram yeah. projects operate it's, on. It's like... It's mad because they think, that you know, paying thousands of pounds to go to a drama school where you put on a silly wee concert at the end of it is, like, better than you actually doing a full-scale musical in the King's Theatre. Like, it doesn't make any yeah. sense. Because um, the club that I, I joined back then was called Pantheon, and uh, they do, like, huge-scale musicals, and, and they, they did, like... They broke all these records with Elf a few years back. Like, and it was an amazing, you wouldn't even believe sometimes that it's Amdram, it's so good. And you're right, and you can't put it on your CV, and it's just, it's a wee shame. Mm-hmm. It's also because it's like, a, it's the closest thing to, because we don't have rep anymore, which was mm. another way that um, working class folks used to find avenues yeah. at the theatre. Um, that doesn't, that just doesn't exist. So Amdram's mm. the closest equivalent. And it's like, why is it, why do we look down on it? It's mad, but yeah, anyway. Anyway, that was a sidebar, but yeah, that's how I got into it. 
that was it, right? And then, <clears throat> so you discovered that at 16. Did you just stay part of Pantheon <laughs> and then just do all those shows? And yeah. then, so was, one, was it somebody at Pantheon that was like, so are you going to go and do drama? Yeah, so actually it was. It's like, it's like you know. Um, so <laughs> I did Amdram. I loved doing Amdram so much because, like you say, you get this chance to play like these huge parts and these amazing stages, right? So, I mean, I was doing, they would do two or three shows a year or whatever, and I would do all of them. Like, I was obsessed. And then even when I found out I had cancer, I would do all the wardrobe and backstage stuff. Like, and it was great to see how that all comes together. And, and it definitely helps me appreciate that now as well. So that definitely built upon those skills. Um, and then it was, we were doing a show, it's such a daft show, it's called Urine Town, like P, like urine, but sounds, everyone goes Urine Town, I'm like no, no, very different show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's a wee comedy show and uh, it was the first time I got cast as the lead in a show um, and this was the year before I ended up going back to college because the director for that show, her name's Katrina Cumming and she um, is absolutely brilliant, uh, she directs loads of good stuff like Amdram and Professional and um, she works at the Knightswood Academy, is it called? Yeah, the Knightswood Academy. So she was like, listen, I think you're really good at this. <laughs> and I was like, oh, really? Um, and she was like, yeah, yeah, I think you should apply to like RCS or whatever. And and I'll help you write your applications because I know you don't know nothing about it. And I was like, oh, OK. So she sort of helped me figure it out. She even offered to pay my fee to apply for RCS because I couldn't afford it. And um, I ended up not applying for RCS because that one was that felt too big. Like I was like, right, I'm not gonna get into RCS like I was like no way so anyway I applied for a few colleges and stuff and I got into a new college Lanarkshire and I went on the musical theatre course I guess because that felt most familiar because obviously singing and dancing was what I'd been doing and at that point I didn't realise I was probably going to focus most on acting so yeah I have no regrets that musical theatre is what kind of got me into it if you know what I'm saying yeah so it was all because of her. She was brilliant. I think that's it's so interesting that you say about the musical theatre thing because there's this that thing as well in our industry, isn't there? Like you're a straight actor, quote unquote, <laughs> or you're a um, musical theatre actor, musical yeah. theatre performer, and there's like it's almost never the two the twain shall meet. But actually, if you can act, then you can't, can't be a musical theatre. Yeah. <laughs> and the amount of shows now that require you to be an actor muso or to be able to sing or to be able to dance and move in a certain mm. way because we are so limited with budget and coming and like shows that are we're yeah. nowhere near what it used to be put it that way so there isn't the capability to have like a cast of like 20 people or 12 people even yeah um and it's that thing of like there is sometimes a snobbery as well about you know musical theater to act in, and it's just it's god the industry's a fucker <laughs> I'm really interested in that idea that you thought that RCS wasn't for you. Yeah, I picked up on that too. It was like that was my dream. And I I guess normally I'm quite used to being quite, I'm going to hate saying the word, but I'm quite brave with my choices in life. And so I don't don't hate saying the words. (laughs) Yeah, that's. It's not kindy. Again, that's been Scottish and ah, being working class yeah. background and is going, you can't uh, you can't like toot your own horn kind of thing. <laughs> like blow yeah. that smoke up your own arse, do it. Yeah. Well, if I'm brave. I don't know. Um no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's one place you can say that loud and proud, it's here in the persistent nasty yes. space. You are like brave. It. So like come it. on. Um 
<clears throat> so I, looking back, I don't know why I didn't, I, I, why I chickened out of that. It was so weird. It was just, I was so intimidated. I felt like you saw the people that came out in there and I was like, oh, I don't see anyone like me. Like, I know that sounds maybe silly because I could have been, I could have went for it and, and tried and then maybe I would have been fine. And I'm sure there's lots of working class actors that go through RCS. But for me, it just felt like, oh God, that's unattainable. So yeah, I mean, I have no regrets now because I, I went to New College Lanarkshire and they're brilliant and they they teach you to be like totally yourself and they're they're really good at that and I love them so I don't regret it it's just a weird I wonder why I didn't do it but yeah yeah. I I totally get that and it's really interesting um our guest that we had on a couple of weeks ago Valerie Edmonds actually from Springburn as well (laughs) and her and I are having lots of conversations about this so it's um it's really fascinating that you've brought that up but like so New College Lanarkshire was previously Motherwell Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for people who maybe studied at Motherwell, they might know because you know then all the colleges decided <laughs> to join and this all. Um, but I actually think there's something when you don't go to like the big name drama schools that mm. you get something that you don't always get, and you just touched on it there about knowing who you are as a performer. Absolutely. Yeah. That you're not made into the kind of five or six types. Yeah. Um, that come out of drama school but you know you um, and I just think that's really interesting that you've said that because I know I feel that mm-hmm. like far more I am although it might not open as many doors as having gone to RCS might have done I know who I am and I didn't lose myself absolutely and I, I mean I've lost myself many other times but not <laughs> in different and ways I think- <laughs> once you start working, anyway, certainly once you start working and proving yourself, it may be harder to get there initially. But from what I've seen, there's people that have gone on even without training. As long as their work is proving it, then no one care. Eventually, no one will care where you went. Like, so yeah, hoping for that. But I don't think people would even dislike Enclan. I think people are beginning to understand that, like you say, there's um uniqueness to it. Like when I went in there, I mean, this is a bold assumption, but like a lot of musical theatre colleges, um, people were like why don't you apply down south blah 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 and I was like I was kind of put off by that because again I think what I've not mentioned yet is that I went from being um about a size 12 before cancer and I was now a size 22 and I think that whether it was in my head or not also made me think people aren't going to be interested in that they're going to think I couldn't dance or that whatever stereotypes they put with it which is not true um then I mean I couldn't dance but that's not because I was fat <laughs> that's just because I couldn't dance um but I went to that I went to that audition and they were they were lovely about it and the whole time at Clan, I never had one comment or problem about being overweight or whatever and th- there was never any of that and you hear about that happening at other colleges so I think again when they're used to working with people that are different they don't question it and they they celebrate you for your uniqueness so yeah it was really nice and and they were also really lovely and supportive when I lost weight which I think a lot of people think oh that must be amazing like but going back down like I don't know why people have that in their head like because whatever size you are you can be happy and I was very happy at a size 22 um but when I lost the weight it was like a psychological shift of who I was because you've just like like we're talking about we've just built up our identity in drama school and then you're like wait what because you suddenly half the size so none of the parts that you would have played, and I was now in third year, so this is like getting towards leaving. I was like, oh my God, who am I? What do I play? Like, I was freaking out. And 
this is going to sound ridiculous, but I, <laughs> I cried one day to my lecturer, Alan, shout out to Alan, um, bless him, and he was hugging me because I was like, I just think people wouldn't find me funny anymore. He was like, what? What? I was like, I don't know. I've got it in my head. Like, it was hilarious. And then he, I was singing kind of a serious song for a showcase that was coming up. And he went, no, do you know what? You're not singing that. You've always been funny. You're going to sing this other ridiculous song. Um, like I've made the decision for you you're singing this to prove to yourself that it doesn't matter and I was like okay and then that worked out for the best so woo, um, good on Alan for like championing me at that time and I think like I say those smaller schools that's what they do they like pick all the things about you that are great and then encourage that rather than trying to fit you all in this one mold so yeah it's really nice yeah and and they're not trying to break you down to absolutely build you into whatever it is that no. they think is going to there be. There was none of that. There was none of that. <laughs> I think that's um, what you've just said there about nobody will find you funny because you were thinner yeah. is something that's, you know, this fat phobia that is in our industry and it is like, we can't, we can't avoid it. Um, I mean, I am the opposite. I went, I left my third year and I was a size eight mm. kind of almost pushing on a size six that was mainly because I couldn't eat because of my endometriosis. So, you know, I was like, yeah, you know, also I was like, probably not, eat, not living the best lifestyle. Other things were keeping her from eating as well. <laughs> as, as a side note, that's a funny thing because a lot of the reason why I lost weight um, was because of my bowel condition. I had to change my diet and stuff like that. And trying, I was trying to figure that out. Um, and then it's funny because I bet you got this. I bet you people were like, you look amazing. Oh my God, you're doing amazing. And you're like, I'm literally ill. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> you're literally championing a body while I'm ill. And it was nothing to do with me. And I, I was like, it didn't make any sense. So, but anyway. Yeah, no, totally. Because I, I started probably my first year size 10, mm. size um, probably chest wise. I was a C cup. By the time I left college, I was nearly a size six with knee boobs whatsoever. Um, and then I had my first operation, kind of cut level back out, then had my next operation. And then when that, sorry, my Alexa's just gone off, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but, then, but then I started putting on weight and I would say that that has then had a shift. And it's just, but going back to what you said about it not, uh, noticing sorry so no covid brain um <laughs> total covid brain but noticing the change in how many additions I got when I was a size eight mm. and how often I was getting seen and seen by actually some pretty big casting directors at one point um, and getting recalled in and getting phoned specifically to see them and then yeah. I put on a bit of weight and all of a sudden that stopped and it's okay. just like well my talent hasn't changed in fact my talent's got better because I'm working Mm-hmm. and I'm improving all the time and I'm learning all the time so that's actually got better so what is it that's stopping the other stuff well it's clearly then a physical thing and then that eats into your your sense of worth about yourself and your sense yeah. of worth about your talent and you had that the opposite way in that fact of you'd gone well you know if I'm funny because we have this thing where well if you're fat big whatever you're the comedy part or you're the funny pal 
or you're the you know this that and the next thing and you yeah. also said about you lost weight about the parts that you wouldn't have had the chance to play when you were bigger when you were a size 22 mm-hmm. but but this isn't a question for you this is a question for our industry why shouldn't you have had those parts a size 22 mm-hmm. why don't we celebrate bodies in their beauty because the whole thing and you said it right at the very start of you're still here yeah it doesn't matter like what size you are like and that the beauty of that and the beauty of life like but also but also all of this undermines the innate hypocrisy of our industry and the elitism talking about you need to go to the right drama school and it's like actually what the fuck does that matter if you're only going to get me in a room for certain parts because I look a certain way where the hell does it matter that I went and it's just it's just one of those things that proves time and time again that there's a very toxic hypocrisy underlining simmering away underneath everything about our industry and it is getting better you know it's obviously it was 10 times worse you know a while ago but <laughs> it's like well, um, <laughs> progress is there um, yeah. it's also just like the language you use because you touched on it Amy this idea of like your weight fluctuating due to things out with your control and your mm. health and and that's why I'm always really careful to just never comment on someone's body size regardless of what their journey is whether yeah. they've lost or gained weight through choice or through a fitness journey or help because it's like I'm not going to place value or insert a seed in your brain that your value is based on how you the size of your body in this world it's just like and people don't even realize that's what they're doing they think they're being really nice like and I think when when I started losing weight initially it was like um I wasn't really making that big a deal about it, but as other people did, I was like, oh, and then I felt all this pressure. I was like, what if I put the weight back on? And I'd never been worried about being big when I was big. So I was like, why am I now freaking out? It was like, I think people think when I was a size 22, I must've been thinking about my weight all the time. I was not, I was so happy. I just did not care. I was like, yep, I'm me. I'm living my best life. I'd built up this like very thick skin. I just did not care. And I was playing all these funny parts and having a laugh. And then when I lost weight, I became so insecure. Like I would be like, oh God, what if I eat that and I put on weight? Like I was suddenly thinking about stupid stuff, but it was never from me. It was from what other people were saying and they were trying to be nice, but they just, they should never have commented on it as much as they did, you know? It was weird. And then I got to a point, so I'm a size 10 now, where I think is where I feel very comfortable now. Um, but I went down to like a size six to eight as well, like you were saying, Elaine. And um, I think that doesn't really suit my frame because I'm quite tall. And people were then like, oh, I can see your ribs. And I was like, oh my God, like, does it, so whatever size I am, I'm getting nonsense. Um, but people were like, you need to eat more. And I was like, oh, wow. I just, in the space of a year, I was like, this has changed so much. Like it was crazy, but yeah. Why do people feel entitled to make comments like that? That's what's always on my mind. It's like, do I do I eat more? Like, what? Kindly fuck off. Like, yeah, you don't know what I mean. Yeah, it's mental to me. Um, and God, it sounds like you were on a roller coaster with it as well. Like with that level of fluctuation and everybody having a bloody opinion about it. Like, get back in your lane. Like, it was it was this one year I went from a size twenty two to a size eight. It was like it was like so no wonder I had a crisis like back then I was like why am I so stressed I was like no wonder I was all over the place and my casting changed so dramatically over this one summer even like the summer was where I lost most of it and I came back to college and everyone was like who is who is this and I was like I don't know I don't even know who I am but then I had to realize actually I am the same person it's all inside and it's just a reflection of what other people are saying about how I look and yeah you just you just have to remember you're still the same and everything about you 
that was that made you a good actress that's funny or whatever it's all still there and it's just people's perceptions it's it's weird but like you said you get seen for different stuff um like I'm always laughing I can't actually think I was talking to Chris about this Louise in the car one day um I was talking about how I kept getting called in for um panto princesses which is great I'd love that I'd like to put that out here I'd love that but I just don't feel like I'm more of a buttons like I'm a bit weird and um I'm not very like nah. <laughs> so I just kept feeling like this would never have happened when I used to look the way I looked and it's so weird and, and I had to get used to it and now I'll enjoy doing those additions but at first I was really out of my comfort zone because and I just I guess even though I was confident I had in my head because of the way the industry is that I wouldn't play pretty parts if you know what I'm saying like that's how I was made to feel and which is not right but that was how it was it was it was given to us as an impression that that was the case and then when I was auditioning for quote-unquote pretty parts for princesses I just felt so uncomfortable and I had to be like this is crazy like it's just a part you need to get over it and so yeah it's weird how we just assume that different body sizes have to play parts when when you walk around in the world people are all sizes um, and they have all personalities like there's there's women that are super confident that are a size 22 then there's ones that aren't and they're maybe worried about it and there's the opposite when it comes to thin people and personalities don't match how you look on the outside so it just I don't get it I don't get it at all I mean it's a societal thing right and like god it's it's all it all stems from the patriarchy <laughs> yeah um, I mean, and it does, but also it's about putting us in our box and keeping us in our box and mm. reminding us, and our industry has a terrible habit. Although I do <clears> think it, and I will, I know I made a face earlier, but <laughs> it, it, it is changing. It's just, we all know I'm very impatient. It's not changing quick enough for me. <laughs> That's true. Um, and Especially when some of that stuff could be a quick fix. <laughs> it's it, just like, well, exactly, exactly. Still be a dick. Still be a dick uh, about yeah. it. That's it. Um, but I think there's a lot that you've just said there that's so impressive and mm-hmm. I don't that, I think that too. sound like in any way shape or form patronizing or belittling it's just <laughs> to know that to be so clear in yourself though Emmy and like to know that I am like I'm guessing I'm probably at least 10 10 if not 12 if not 15 mm-hmm. if not 16 years older than you um I don't know that for a fact. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think so. I'm actually so much older than people always think that. <laughs> um, oh, well, now I'm curious. <laughs> I know, but I don't, I, I mean, never ask anybody their age, but it just, you have a really youthful presence about you. So, which is a great thing, because I think I've got that too. She says, mm-hmm. holding on, holding on. I'm holding you on. <laughs> You've got hoops on, that means youth. <laughs> yeah. uh, honestly, the bigger the hoop, the, oh, nope. you'll need to pull them from my... Uh, my dead lobes. Buried <laughs> <laughs> with them like Pat Butcher. Like. <laughs> oh my God, I love a Pat Butchery ring. Give me a Pat Butchery ring any day. Anyway, I just it's so impressive. You're so clear on who exactly you are, and also what you've just said about the fact that we are all we all have so much internally that doesn't what you see on the outside isn't always the right thing to look at, and it's. It's an age-old saying. It's a freaking cliche for a reason. Never judge a book by its cover. Like it's, you know, it is that. But I'm just so incredibly impressed with your. I'm just impressed with you. 
That was yeah. oh, very wise. You're like Nonsense. a philosopher. I find myself being very inspired by everything that you're saying. And you've touched on so much that sort of goes to the core of, of what we try and champion at Persistent Nasty. You touched on when you talked about the RCS, like I didn't see anybody who looked like me or who was me coming out of there. Mm. That's pretty key. And that's a key thing about everything that's wrong with our industry. And just some of the stuff you were saying there, like it just struck me like, I mean, we talk about this all the time about how actors have very little autonomy, but just the ability to say, actually, to a casting director or whoever, actually, I think I can do this. And this is where I, I sit quite comfortably. Yeah. Don't don't judge me on what I can do, what I can project to the world based on how I look. Mm-hmm. Like, give me a shot at funny or give me a shot at princess, because I, I am telling you, I know myself and I think I can do it. But we don't, yeah. we don't get the opportunity to do that. It's not a thing. It's a shame because when you see it, you're always like, you know, when you see a love interest who's bigger for example right and people go oh but they don't go oh like oh my god they go oh that's unusual and then and a minute in they don't care they just go oh I love that I love that piece for this reason and that reason and they just stop caring but they only go oh because they're not used to it it's not like they're put off I mean I've never heard of anyone being like oh my god I can't believe they've cast that person in that part like it just that doesn't happen I really want to touch on and if you're all right with it about um, obviously going through cancer at such a young age and how that obviously you know you finished your treatment and then made that decision to follow what <laughs> you love but also then the fact that you've had to go through menopause at a really young age and how that impacts you do you feel that that and we'll come to it in a little minute but do you feel that's got an impact on the industry as well like your work in the industry but let's start with the dealing of uh, dealing with cancer at like 19 which is fucking it yeah huge. it was wild um I'd been not well since I'd kind of had some symptoms of it since I'd left school actually um just after I left school I think I just started having kind of funny periods and little bits of pain and stuff but now any woman will know it's hard to get diagnosed with anything in that area because it's so complicated and there's so many things it could be. So at the beginning, it was just, okay, let's put you on the pill and like see how it goes kind of thing. Fine. Um, then it was like, it just kept getting progressively worse every time I went to the doctor. I would go, I was going so often. And I think that is the only thing in hindsight that I'm like, right, I'll give my GP slack. It was very unlikely to be cancer, right? Fair. But if you're coming every month, to the doctors, just send some. Just that should just be a rule. Just send someone on to a specialist if they're coming that often. Like it's just wild. But anyway, so I was coming back all the time, and it was like, okay, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And it was always things like, oh, it's your mood. Like I was like, it's nothing to do with it. It would always be as if it was in my head, or as if it was something small. And then eventually, um, they were like, okay, I think maybe you've got a cyst. And I was like, right. I'd be willing to believe that. So they went, let's send you for an ultrasound. I was like, finally, this has been months and months in the making and I'm at uni now and everything. Um, Anyway, I get sent for this ultrasound and they did see something. So they were like, oh, yep, it's probably a cyst. So now this is in the May, right? And they were like, we'll send you for an operation to remove the cyst in October. I was like, okay. And they went, we don't have to remove the cyst anyway. It's fine. It's just a cyst. And I was like, no, please remove it. Because in my head, I was like, I don't think this is just as simple as this. Like, I just had this feeling. It's like, you know your body. Like, I always urge people to trust your own instincts. If you know something's not right, and it always is, it's always the case. You're always correct. Um. So anyway, it gets to the October. It goes in, does the operation. It's just a wee keyhole, so it wasn't a big problem. Um. And then 
yeah, I went back to uni. I was fine. It was a quick recovery. But he phoned a few weeks later and he was like, can you come into the hospital the next morning? Right. And I was like, oh, OK. Um, and he said, don't come alone. And as soon as he said, don't come alone, I was like, oh, well, <laughs> something bad's going on, something sinister. And my mind straight away went to cancer because I'd been Googling it. I know you're not meant to. <laughs> but anytime I Googled it, I swear, the list of symptoms that I had, it was like bloating, back pain, funny periods, um, mood swings, tired all the time. It was like the full list of ovarian cancer symptoms. And I was like, nah, nah, it's fine. So as soon as he said that, I was like, okay, I've got a feeling. Told my dad to come with me and I was like, you know, just set you up here. I think I might have cancer. And he was like, no, no, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Um, but unbeknownst to me, I don't know how this happened or why it was allowed, but because I was 19, but um, the doctor had actually spoken to my dad privately because my dad phoned him back and he'd already told my dad that he thought it might be cancer. That's why he had to come in with me. So my dad had obviously worked his wee sneakiness to find out what was going on. Um, so the next day I went in, had a bunch of tests. And then at the end, they were like, um, coming into this wee side room. If you're ever taken into a side room, I'm sorry in advance. <laughs> there was a box of tissues put on the table. Like I was like, oh, okay. And they were like, so you've got um, cancer, but we don't know where it is. Like, we don't know where it started. And I was like, okay. And they were like, so we don't know how bad it is, but it probably won't be that bad because you're so young. It would be early stage, probably. They set me up so wrong for this. And I was like, okay. So they went and come in for hug me because this was the end of November. They went like, come and hug me to get this operation. And we're going to open you up and we'll have a wee explore and we'll find it because it's definitely somewhere down there. I was like, okay. So I went in for that operation, signed all the paperwork. Um, and then I woke up. So I went to sleep thinking I had probably stage one cancer somewhere that they couldn't really see it on a scan. So it couldn't be that bad. And then I woke up and I was like so much pain. And the, oh, this is a hot, oh, this is the worst day of my life, guys. Um, so I woke up and this woman was doing the rounds. This doctor was doing the rounds. Like she's not my doctor, you know, she says we chart and checks on everyone. And um, she was like, uh, so have you had a hot flush or anything yet? Have you had any uh, symptoms of your uh, menopause? And I was like, what? <laughs> like, because this is now, I think this is 48 hours later because I slept for so long, right? And I was like, sorry, what? And she was like, you know, because you had your ovaries removed. And I was like, I had what now? Like, I was like, what? It was crazy. And the woman next to me in the bed, um, her name's Marjorie. She's great. We're still friends. Um, she just had the same operation and she was looking over me and she was so mad at this nurse. She was like, just get out, just get out. Right. And she was like, okay, okay. And so she leaves. Um, so I was like, oh, what am I going to do? And bless her, Marjorie came over, having just had the same operation from her bed and came and lay with me because I was suddenly grieving, losing like my ovaries. It was bizarre. And obviously it turned out I had stage three ovarian cancer. So it was pretty bad. <laughs> and so I had to have chemo uh, for six months, I think. So not too long, but not great, not nice. Um, the chemo basically cleared up any of the stuff that had sort of travelled upwards and out the way, which luckily was small enough that it did clear up. Um, but for a while there, the prognosis was not great. But uh, I don't know. I think because when you're young, it's kind of hard to judge your prognosis because if I'd been an older lady, I probably would have died but my body was kind of young enough to fight it. So yeah, it was just really lucky that we caught it just in time because they said, had it been a few more weeks, which had been a long time, it probably would have been stage four and it, there would have been nothing they could do. So I do count my chickens, as my mom says, every day that I'm here. And yeah, so then I started the menopause from there and then the bowel problems. So it, the list goes on. <laughs> I mean, 
so much in that, but your attitude to it all is really just incredible and um, uplifting and uh, inspiring. But so many things in that that you've touched on, you know, young women in particular not being listened to when they go to the doctors mm. and asking and your mood your mood your, your mood like, excuse me sir the only effect, thing affecting my mood is you you prick now <laughs> i'm on your fucking mood sorry <sighs> no it's like it turned a- out i was moody because I, I i feel like not a lot of people know this but cancers generally make you kind of have horrible hormonal changes and very tired that's like two major symptoms of cancer so if you're ever feeling two of them at the same time probably go and get seen because that's I was I was just flabbergasted when I found out um did I just use the word flabbergasted <laughs> that's hilarious I don't know where that came from um I was flabbergasted when I found out because I was just like this if it had been an older lady you're totally right because I was young they just didn't take it seriously had I been an older lady with those exact symptoms it was like alarm bells would be ringing ovarian cancer a year before that and then I probably wouldn't have lost my ovaries, but you kind of think like that because there's nothing else I could have done is the way I like to think about it. I can't regret it because I didn't do anything wrong. So it was Absolutely meant to happen not. the way it was. Absolutely so. not. And um, again, this is, she goes back to the patriarchy, but it is because it's like we're ignored and, you know, your opinion and what you think isn't right. And oh, you're just a young woman and you've got a bad period and mm-hmm. you just get sore periods. Periods are meant to be sore. Hashtag they're actually not. Um, so you you get ignored. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you hadn't, as you said, probably kept going every month to the doctors, then who knows what could have happened? But then you also might have just, who knows, you might have got a locum one day who'd have been like, hmm, doesn't sound that great. Yeah. Um, and thank goodness, goddess, whoever, like whatever, <laughs> like, you know, if you got seen and you got seen um, eventually. But also just that sense of um, sisterhood and sistership from Marjorie of doing that that moment like honestly you said that and I was like Lane get your oh, fucking fuckers together I could feel them I was like don't you dare start fucking crying <laughs> um but it's that's a really beautiful example of what it is when we as human beings can just empathize with each other mm. she is crying I know I couldn't even sit up and I know that she couldn't sit I don't know how I always think about it and I'm like how did she do that like it was so much a superhuman moment she's such a queen but yeah she did that because she's got empathy and she cares and she looked at the situation and saw someone totally like like you've been basically like you've gone through that operation mm-hmm. been told that you've got cancer but they've they've kind of prepped you for don't worry it's all going to be fine to nobody coming and actually speaking to you when you wake up and then somebody just coming in and fucking railroading you and you're I like know, what like, the hey. fuck marjorie I mean, is a queen thank you marjorie don't know apparently you. this doctor me. just thought that I had I already knew, which was fair to assume because it's not me. But I was like, job and check that somebody's nose. Like you don't just have to walk up to someone. (laughs) Have you started your menopause? Sorry, excuse me. But it does happen that fast, wildly. Mm. Like I, I don't know what if I've ever if I'd been told about it before. I think I would have been like surprised still that it was like the two days afterwards. You're already like, oh my god, because like the menopause begins immediately. It's not like when you have it naturally and it sort of declines and you're like, well, I'm getting a wee bit warm. I was like, I can't breathe. <laughs> I can't sleep. And I was wild and I was having 
temper tantrums that I can't even explain and I was just roasted all the time. It was horrible. But thank God it's plateaued now. <laughs> That's that is a lot. Because <laughs> you talked about something there as well about grieving it. Mm-hmm. And that grief is huge and it comes in waves and it comes in and to go through that because not only are you a grieving that part of your body that's no longer there you were probably grieving what you maybe had a plan on what your life was going to be yeah completely like uh, it sounds a bit strange maybe but I didn't really have because about two weeks after that I had to start my chemo and I was still like, oh, from the operation. Because it's a big, it's a big op. And as it turns out, obviously that was a life-altering op in, in the long term, but we'll get there. Um, but it was like I didn't have time to process it. I never had time to process anything when I was when I had cancer. I think there must be an assumption. Like I was treated at Teenage Cancer Trust, which by the way, great charity. And it's a it's a ward at the Beatson in Glasgow where it's just teenagers with cancer. And it was wild. I've got so many stories from that time. But anyway, imagine leaving a bunch of teenagers pretty much alone. They all think they're going to die. The hedonisms like like the peak level, the shenanigans were real. Um, but at that time, we were just having a laugh because you didn't know if you were going to turn around and your pal was deep the next day. It was half run all the time. So you weren't going to spend the time going, oh, I'm sad about this. You just pushed it to the side and you got on with it. And I think when I got better from cancer, two things came into play. One, I wanted to get on my life like anyone would. So I was like, I'm going back to uni. And they were like, no, I don't recommend you go back to uni straight away, which now I know was because of my menopause and how that really affected uni. But at the time I was like, no, don't be mad. I'm fine. Like, I don't need it. I don't need to stop. So I went straight back to uni. But I think it was also, I had this crazy survivor's guilt that I didn't know that's what it was at the time. But I just kept thinking, I can't stop because I need to live this amazing big life. Otherwise, it wasn't fair for everyone else. And I know that sounds crazy, but I still do it. I'm like, God, you can't be sad. Like, my pal Emma's looking down on me like, you can't be sad. Like, it's like I feel them all up there going, you need to do this kind of thing and that can be encouraging but it can also be very overwhelming but I think I actually didn't really this might sound strange but I didn't really deal with the cancer or the menopause or any of that stuff until during lockdown (laughs) weirdly so I kind of thought I had because I would make jokes about it but that is just my go-to like I would just make a joke and I thought because I could joke about it I was normalizing it and I was fine but actually I was just making jokes so I didn't have to deal with any of the actual feelings I had because I thought I didn't have any I'd, I'd buried them so deep you know and then I've always been quite busy so I I used to think that's just because I enjoyed it even if it was stressful I'd be like right I'm going there I'm going to rehearse I'm going to this choir I'm going to do this job blah 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 I'd just be so busy in any free time I have I would phone a friend I'd be like I want you to come over like I've never really liked spending any time alone which is strange um but then during lockdown, when you were forced to have nothing to do and spend all this time alone, I just lost it. Like, it was so weird. I just, I was like, why am I crying about my ovaries that I lost many moons ago? But I was, like, really upset that I couldn't have children all of a sudden and all this. And my poor boyfriend, who had just moved in with me before lockdown, must have been like, what's happening? What happened to this, like, fun lassie that I moved in with? But bless him, he was really good at, like, looking after me and making sure I was fine because he'd been through the mill with mental health and I think it's always easier to empathize once you have been through it and you kind of get how people might feel so low and 
so yeah I saw a therapist for the first time during lockdown and I was really hesitant like I think it was just because I I knew that if I opened up I wouldn't be able to put it back again and I definitely can and I'm definitely more of an emotional person now but I think that that's a good thing I hated it at the first like I was like oh god I hate this like I I've never liked to be or oh, woe is me you know like oh that was so sad that that happened because again in the back of my mind is no no you're lucky because look what happened to your friends so I've maybe got three four friends surviving from that cancer unit when I met hundreds of people during that time so yeah I think I just didn't want to open it up but now that I have and now that I've had time to process it a bit I think it's good even from an acting point of view that I can access that because I used to think I can't be a serious actor like I used to have a block there with like trying to act serious I would always act funny I think that was all part of it like I could be wrong but I think that was just me going I can't go there and now I'm like yeah I'm gonna go there I'm gonna explore all those feelings and hopefully it makes me a better person and hopefully it also makes me a better actress (laughs) yes like that was a lot what you (laughs) that was a monologue none of what you've said said, Amy is like it's not like we can't relate or understand it I completely understand all of the things that you've said and why you felt those ways the survivor guilt and you know keeping it and filling your time and you know playing the funny part so you don't need to tap into that because that's fucking huge and I can only empathize but what I see and hear is just a truly wonderful human being who is open and willing and ready to take it all but also she's crying oh no (laughs) no, (laughs) it was Uh, the journey that was all (laughs) I mean no it's at the start (laughs) with the journey yeah you're probably one of the most important conversations we've had on here in a while just for by virtue of fact yes your your story is very specific but what you've tapped into is there's so many universal truths about being human across your entire journey and you've spoken so succinctly and and from such a grounded emotionally so like you sound so emotionally centered in yourself and that's I'm gonna cry now (laughs) and that's incredible I think I think I think you are incredible and I think you've touched on so many important things so yes the journey might be specific but I I challenge anyone to listen to your chat today and not immediately fall in love with you and be completely completely inspired oh look how uncomfortable I am about being called nice things I'm like yeah I want to die <laughs> again total Scottish thing of like can't really? take the compliment and uh, all of that uh, sorry everybody I'm back I'm back I'm back I'm sorted it out uh, I say I've sorted it out I probably haven't I'm and you know I, I I am an emotional person um but I do think everything that Louise has just said is so true and you are just incredible and you've touched on so many things and things that don't always aren't always allowed to be given time I think in our industry in particular because it is you know you need to keep moving and you need to keep mm-hmm. um it's the next job the next job the next job and if you're not up for it there's a hundred other people that are right behind yeah. you so there isn't the time to be allowed to sit in what you need to sit to be okay I do think we are getting better at it slightly and I had high, I did have high hopes like you know after lockdown that we'd come back to a different industry yeah mm. I think the, the certainly in this sort of smaller scale Scottish stuff I think it is a really nice it's beginning to get a nicer vibe like a really really nice and 
and everyone I've met has been super lovely and encouraging and all the stuff I've done they've been asking about welfare and stuff and I, I just think it's really nice to see I mean I wasn't in the industry before when it was like years ago when it was much worse so I, I have nothing to compare it to but everyone I've met has been so nice and welcoming so it's it's good I I would agree with that I think <clears throat> there is a I'm really proud of Scotland especially yeah. in the smaller scale stuff I think there is a, a huge um, shift in welfare and um, help for people when they need it and um, just that taking of time to make sure that it's a safe environment yeah or as safe as you can make it and then if it isn't people are trying to then learn from that Absolutely. and that's like that's all we can really ask is that people learn and kind of try and, and put those things in place to make it better um, yeah. and that's really important and that's great to hear that you'd experience in that yeah, because see, even when I when I graduated and I was entering the industry, at a very weird time, I grant you, because it was 2020. But um, and I at first didn't put like my disability on spotlight and stuff like that. And I was like, I better be quiet about it. Like no one must know. I would just need to deal with it myself. And then I found that actually people are very <laughs> nice overall. And I kind of decided if there was anyone that was weird about it, then I don't want to work with them anyway. So I don't care <laughs> so I'm just yes. vocal about it because then hopefully also help other people be vocal about it because that's yep. certainly how I found it there's there's so many people online that are going yeah I'm a disabled actress so what and I'm like yeah yeah me too and so I started joining in with that and I think the only thing I'm hesitant about is that people don't take the time that they might not take the time to understand what it means because I think some people can be put off when it's something like say you were in a wheelchair they know what to expect see when you've got a bill condition they're like oh god what does that mean what's that going to mean for me is that mean you're going to, not going to be in and stuff like that so I always find myself like over explaining I'm like so it just means this and it'll actually be fine and I can really deal with it myself and I, I just wish I could get to a place where I don't feel like I need to over explain <laughs> yeah and I think that's on if I may that's on the industry um myself as a producer where well-being practice is concerned I'm always like, what can I do to make sure that this this conversation, the burden of awkwardness or the burden of of, a, of any of it isn't on the person who already has all of this to deal with? And mm -hmm. it's, I think the industry is responsible for this programming, like that thing you said about, I don't want to put it on the spotlight because no one must know. <laughs> the industry is responsible for that. So I think it's our job as people who produce things or make work or create rooms and create spaces make them safe but also to kind of like understand there's internalized ableism in everyone and mm -hmm. and help people unpack it and do everything that we can to make sure that that process is as um sensitive and easy for the person the person who Absolutely. needs the care and the support in the rehearsal room as possible like it shouldn't Absolutely. be you shouldn't have to over explain it it should just be on us to go what do you need you need that you don't need to tell me why that's yeah. fine you, you tell and me that's you need that that's how you tell the difference between organizations and, and, and production companies that um actually want to work with disabled people and, and and well any people that they just don't mind who they work with and that it's not about that and the people who are just paying lip service because I think some places I've seen like additions pop up where I'm like from the from just even reading it they don't want me to apply when they said a disabled person they want someone visibly disabled so that they can go look I have a disabled person in my show so then I sit in this weird place where I go I'm disabled but not enough but too much at the same time I'm like oh my god like it's 
exhausting. Yeah, yeah. So you're disabled in the wrong kind of way because it's not totally. the sexy disabled that gives them great optics, but it's the inconvenient disabled that means you might need to go to the toilet more, you might need this extra care in the rehearsal room, which puts their budget in, in problems and makes it all inconvenient and timing for them. Like, go fuck yourself. I'm sorry, that's but so that true. is like that's my response to that. Sorry. I have had that's too so much true. coffee today. <laughs> I don't know why you're apologizing. Is the persistence? You're right though, and Louise is right what's just been said, and it is, you know, and what you talk about, about talking about it and being open about it, there is a, there's a, there's that thing of you make that decision, I think, to step into that and go, I'm going to be loud about it, and I'm going to be, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to talk about it, and I, not that it's remotely on the same level, but, you know, as a, somebody who suffers with endometriosis, I have been loud, casting director who said to me you know you maybe shouldn't put so much about you being an endometriosis sufferer on your social media and I went I mean Louise is literally giving the fingers and saying fuck off nobody can see it which is hilarious um and I was just like well no (laughs) I won't be doing that I'm not going to be quiet about something that affects my life daily you're literally a human I don't know Oh. Yeah, but also I kind of look at it as every time I talk about it, somebody else might go, and I know that this has happened because I've shared stuff and I've had people come to me, as I'm sure you probably have, and had said, oh, the stuff that you've mentioned, Elaine, I've actually then, that's what I'm experiencing. So I'm now going to mm-hmm. go to my doctor and really push to get the next thing because yeah. I've been trying to get something. And I'm like, well, do you know what? that casting director can go fuck himself because I'm like, I wouldn't want to work with you anyway, mate. And you're not getting the point of the fact that what I might have done might have actually helped someone by just Mm -hmm. saying, here I am, here's my symptoms. This is what I've got. This is what I've been dealing with today. If this is you, fucking bang on your doctor's door and get what needs to get done. Yeah. And also it's part of who we are as performers. And you said it about you know being open and me and like the possibility I'm sure you were already a great actress but you know when we open ourselves up we do tap into other things so it does help us with our performance and knowing all of that does make you better why and also if somebody doesn't want you to have that why would they not want that is the question that always it's it's so weird and and if you have if you ever hide these kind of problems you have you actually cause more of them that's what I found like with my tummy, I need to make sure I'm taking my meds right, eating at the right times, and and just making sure if I do need the toilet, I just go. Like it's never actually caused a problem doing a show. Like it's never actually caused any problem. It's just been like, oh, can I just go for a wee toilet break? And they're like, I no bother. It's not actually a problem. So for me, when I at the beginning, when I was trying to hide that, even when I was at college, when it started sort of started being a problem. I would just be like holding in the toilet or something and that would make it worse. So then I'd be really unwell for like three days and then that would actually cause a problem. <laughs> Whereas if I'm just like, listen, I need the toilet, I need the jobby. They'll be like, on you go, goodbye. It's fi-. Like it was totally fine. And um, I was worried about it, like really worried about it when it came to doing, I'd, I'd done a wee tiny part in Shetland, right? Um, <laughs> and I was so worried about it because I hadn't been in that setting before. And I thought, God, what if you're on set though? That's different. This isn't a rehearsal room, right? This is get on set. And it's all uh, it's worth mentioning during a show, it's fine because it's it's only a couple of hours for a show, so it's never been a problem. But 
on set you're there for hours and and you can't leave mid-set that would cost them thousands of pounds kind of thing but then I was just like I'm just going to be open and honest about it and they were great they were so nice and understanding they're like yep let us know that's fine that's no problem like we'll bring you special food and I was like this is amazing like and I, I was a, a minuscule part so if you'd been playing a bigger part I'm sure there would have been even like more accommodating so it, it was nice to take sometimes if you take the chance and you give people a chance to prove that they're not shit <laughs> then they'll prove that they're not shit and it's nice uh, to see yeah and I think do you know what we we, we I think that's a really good point because I, I felt myself I felt it bubbling up in myself to just remind myself and us and anyone listening that there are a lot of good eggs out there in fact there's probably more good eggs than bad it's totally. just that the stories, the horror stories that we encounter, they rise to the top because they're like, <laughs> yeah. what? Because th- those are the stories that get repeated because they're quite shocking and they leave a mark. They impact us and they leave a mark. The good stuff doesn't get shouted about. There's loads of, in fact, like the lane's already touched on it. Scotland is doing brilliantly where well, well-being and good practice is concerned. I mean, there's obviously there's obviously still room, lots of room for improvement, but we're, there are so many good people working really hard to do better. And that stuff doesn't get shouted about enough because it's not as salacious or shocking as a bad story. And yeah. It's just what should be happening. So it's not it's not shared enough. So I think that's really encouraging to hear. And so it's a lovely thing to hear that Shetland, we're like, yep, no bother, because oh, so there's lots of good practice going on. and We need to shout about it more. Yeah, and then when we were doing when I was doing the show that um Chris was helping with, um, is that you Santa by Jennifer Dick? <laughs> Shout out. Um she'd be like, Woo! Uh, they were lovely about it as well. It was just like if you're doing a long, long days of rehearsal, that's when I'm going to need the toilet. Like I can't help it, I just poo more often than other people. Sorry, I've said jobbing poo a lot. I apologize. Um, but you I was like apologize on this podcast. I need a poo. And they were like, on you go. And I was like, okay. And it was fine. And then it was like dealt with 15 minutes later. We're all good to go. No other trouble with the rehearsal or whatever. Or if I'm in pain, I never stop when I'm in pain. I probably should. But I normally just strap on a heating aid or like um something to help with the pain. And then it looks a bit mad during rehearsal, but it doesn't actually cause a problem. So like I'll have a hot water bottle like thing that straps around me. And so it's just worth them knowing that so I don't look mental. Like if I just go, hey, I'm just putting this on, they're like, cool. Like, let's go on with it kind of thing. And yeah, so it just helps to be open and, and it's, yeah, the more the more all of us are open about it, the more normalised it becomes and then it won't be a problem for people in the future, hopefully. So fingers crossed. And it should just be standard because like with yeah. the idea, the very idea that you might find, have found yourself in a room where you bring that up and you're open about it, you go, just need to do it. And they're like, um, no, oh, that's weird. Or no, you can't go for a job. And be like, okay, well, I've just found myself in a room with a bunch of monsters. I really wish I, had, yeah. I wasn't here. The likelihood of that's like so small, but in your head, exactly. Yeah, but it's society that's programmed it. That's the problem. We're still unpacking so much of this stuff. Absolutely. I mean, I when I found out I was getting my stoma, um, I I, I was on the phone to Claire, my agent, who's the loveliest person ever, and um, I phoned her, and even though I know she's the loveliest person ever, I was like. It, it won't cause a problem like you you won't drop me will you she's like no like just nothing crazy she was like it's fine I've had people with a stoma bag before and I was like really and then I met one of the other clients on the book who's who'd had a stoma bag before I wouldn't say her name because I don't think it's public information but she'd had a stoma bag before and she, I had a wee coffee with her and chat about it she's like yeah it's totally fine I was like god I feel so much better because I thought people would be like oh god she's gonna have this bag like I can't cast her in this role what about if I can see it through her costume or whatever which isn't the case but you worry that people have 
like these ideas like oh it'll smell again that's not true you can't smell it at all but you worry that people have these misconceptions but I think it's I've, I've seen the other because I met that actress that's exactly what I hope will happen because I met her and she went no it's totally fine and because my agent was like no I've had people like that before I was like oh I feel I feel fine like if I was worried about nothing and for me I stole my bag's gonna make it like a million times better because there'll be no more I need to go for a job it'll be like I just emptied my bag this morning I'm fine thank you like <laughs> I'll be like buzzing and I'll be on top form so it was silly to be worried about it and it was silly that Sometimes you get so into this industry, I don't know if it's mad, but I was like, maybe I shouldn't get a stoma and help my own health so that I still get cast and stuff. How bizarre is that? Like, oh God. This industry has a lot to answer for, for the fact that that even went through your brain. Like, that's wild. That's totally wild. I mean, it's probably all in my head, but I was just like, God, what if... I don't know if it is all in your head. I mean, I don't think it is because I think that... and. I'm going to make sure that you stop saying that for you, yourself because <laughs> um, that's not fair on you that you're even remotely putting that. That is coming from the industry and it comes from little comments or passive-aggressive moments or aggressive-aggressive moments from people <laughs> who who A, don't care or B, don't want to educate themselves to find mm-hmm. out what things mean. And the fact that, you know, if that's about, say it was about a costume, right? Just say it was about a costume. Um, and the designer or the director have a specific idea in their head if they can't shift that fucking slightly to accommodate some their actor's health they should not be in this industry because they're a cunt absolutely and um on the other side of the coin someone said to me like oh you know it would only really matter if you're wearing like a bikini or something and I went and even then, how cool would that be if you're just watching a TV show and someone just has a stoma? We're not talking about it. They just have a stoma. It's nothing about the stoma. It's just normalised. How beautiful would that be? I'd love that. Like, because it's okay for us to have tattoos on our body. And it's okay if it was... Well, I was going to say if you were pregnant, but that's no, not necessarily because people are also cunts about that. Um, but, you know, <laughs> why? yeah, why shouldn't it be? Why shouldn't it be? I've said yes. now said cunt three times. She's still saying it. She's saying it. After saying I wasn't swearing, that's hilarious. <laughs> well, it's a reality for people. It comes all the way back to what you were saying about not seeing anybody like you. It's like when that is a lived reality for millions of people. Yeah. And yeah, you're totally right. Just present it. Don't you don't need to comment on it. It's just this character happens to also have that. It's got nothing to do with anything, but here they are. Our job as performers and creatives is to show the stories of people that live their lives so that people know that they've been seen and heard. And if our industry isn't doing that, then we are failing our audience. Yeah. And that's that's the that's the bottom line. And you know, we can have our moments where we've got, you know, old Hollywood glamour and all of that, where it all looks absolutely beautiful because we want a wee bit of escapism. But I actually ask most people what they would like to see and they want to go, I would love to see myself represented on screen because I don't see me and that makes me feel like I am not worth anything or I am not valued or I am not visible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And who says we can't have a bit of Hollywood glamour with a stoma bag? I no, I didn't one. mean that. I just, no, oh, I absolutely, we can I know, have I know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely we can. Um, 
Just put like a silk bag over it. Hollywood glamour, it's fine. it's fine. They should make those. They should make a range so you can have they like do. your formal stoma bag. Oh, they do. do. Yeah, they Amazing. do. They're so excited. I'm buzzing now. I'm going to buy them all. <laughs> you can have like your casual stoma bag and your red carpet stoma bag. Yeah, you just put a wee cover over like, hello. <laughs> Outstanding. Love Doesn't RuPaul have a stoma bag? Um, no, it was some. It was someone on RuPaul's Drag Race that had the stoma bag. Yeah. Ah. It was really good. Although it was a wee sh- it was a shame, right? Because the the queen had it and it was such a empowering moment. And my friend who has a stoma bag, my best friend has one. It's so weird that we'll both have them. That's such a weird occurrence. But um, she's got one. She was like, I think she was quite hurt because it was nice to see them with a stoma and they didn't make a big thing about it. That was just nice. And they were doing their job and they were being an amazing queen and it didn't hold them back. But then there was a joke made about it smelling like immediately after that and it was like oh, right that was that was rubbish like it was just the tone was like oh, why um it just was it was inappropriate just because it was like I'm sure the queen could have taken the joke and it wasn't a problem but it was more like this was a moment for people that had stolen bags to go me on tv and then they were like oh <laughs> so it was like horrible but Still good to see someone on on a big TV show like that where it it was literally nothing to do with a stoma bag. It just so happened they had one. It was lovely. Hmm. I mean, I could continue to talk to you for quite a long time. Not going to lie. Um, But also realising that you have your day to experience. (laughs) Um, And I would love to ask a couple of things. Like for you right now, though, what, what is something that you would really love? Like, what part are you looking for? So you mentioned Princess Panto, so we'll manifest that, we'll manifest it. <laughs> um, but is there something that you've always thought, because I'm really still, like, that idea that you said at the beginning about this isn't for me and RCS wasn't for you and coming, like, from your background, is there something now that you're like, fuck, that's me, I want that and I will get that part? There's there's a few type that type of thing. I'm I'm really enjoying the whole. I like I like fun shows where you can just have a laugh, like Panto and like Is That You Santa? When we did that, that was just so much fun. And I think because I really enjoy working with kids, I really enjoy doing a kids show. So that was something I learned. Um, and we did puppetry, so I was like, Oh my god, I love this! Like, also kids are some of the best audiences. And again, it gets looked down on in industry. And I'm like, They'll fucking tell you if it's right or not within a second. And then I really I really like working with kids and and audiences that maybe aren't traditional I like that kind of thing because I had an audition the other day and it was for it was this lovely show for people with dementia and I was like this is beautiful this is what I want like to move people and and, and bring theatre to people who it wasn't accessible to because I know what that's like like I didn't see it um but also I'd really like to write my own stuff as well so I'm getting super into that at the moment so that that's fun yeah so just applying yay. for everything <laughs> yay. yay more 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 women writers more bring it all that's what we want that's what we need and there's a definite again I've noticed a big change in Scotland with that over the last I would say even the last couple of years and especially this season of theatre with more yeah. female writers at the front which is just although you've got you've definitely got a tv show pilot in you like skins in a teenage cancer ward Listen, there you go. Yeah, sure. Log line. Right I was there. telling. I was telling um 
Chris all about that did he he said that he told you like everything yeah. I was talking about in the car went listen because these were like 5 a.m drives to to Sterling every morning so no one else was talking but I'm like a mad morning person so I was like hiya Chris and he was like oh shut up I've not had coffee you know that way and I was like I've got an idea today and he's like what's your idea today <laughs> and I was like well, I've been thinking about doing this um, TV show and it's set in a teenage cancer ward in Glasgow and all the shenanigans. And then I started telling them all the things that happened. Like we would go on holiday together and it was called Find Your Sense of Tumour and that people were like getting thrown out and Find Your Sense of Tumour for shagging and all this. Like he was like, what? And there was all, there's so much shenanigans and he was like, you have to write this. And I was like, no one would watch it. And he no, was, oh. I would watch, oh my God, <laughs> no. Oh, you so have to write this. You have to write it. You have, you to. have to write it. That was my reaction as well, because oh. Chris relayed that. He was like, never guess what Emmy said today. And I was like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, that's other story. Oh, there's too many. There's actually too many. I could you we'll do another podcast one day where I detail stories of cancer. Facts. Oh my God, yeah, like, like, yeah. Listen, I can see this wholeheartedly. And I know I, I'm speaking for Louise and I shouldn't, but I know that she's going to agree completely. We will have you back on the podcast. Any, any time, any moment that you want. You are just literally one of like my heart is touched and uh, nice. proper in love with you. You've had the you've had the total like Elena's fallen in love with you and she's cried. <laughs> bing, bing, bing. <laughs> well done. Um, we do, I mean, the whole podcast is really the answer to this question. <laughs> However, I am going to ask you the question. Okay. And I don't need to explain it to Emmy because she fucking listens to the podcast. It's amazing. <laughs> um, so, Emmy Quinn, what does the phrase persistent and nasty mean to you? To me personally, okay. <clears throat> it means uh, to me that you should consistently show the world the sides of you that you're worried are a bit crazy and mad and that they might be like, what? Because that makes you so uniquely you. And if you keep doing it, you'll shine and you'll be yourself and it'll be magical. That's what it means to me. <laughs> you fucking love it. Beautiful. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Emmy, um, honestly, thank you. What? No, thank you. Thank you. You're a diamond. Mm. A wonderful chat. Thank you so much for coming on. And thank you for being so honest and talking so uh, candidly about your experiences. I think people are going to, absolutely adore listening to you and fall in love with you like <laughs> or think I'm mad and that's a jobby too many times but I no, mean that's no. fine too <laughs> I mean they can think you're mad that's fine but don't apologize for saying jobby <laughs> yeah, we're like, normalizing the jobby like, you're just saying the word jobby <laughs> yeah exactly hi there <laughs> um but also you're not because everything that you've just said it's who you are uniquely and if people aren't okay with that then jog on mate jog yeah. on Jog, jog when on. I become a permanent shite bag and that is what I will be calling myself um, there's going to be so much poo humour that no one's ready to be honest so. <laughs> a permanent shite bag well, oh we- my god I also That's love I feel- that and I love yeah, how Scottish amazing. that joke is as well. Like That's I don't brilliant. know if that will transfer. Wouldn't land else. <laughs> well, I, I'm excited to. I mean, our listeners who are um, all over the world, I want to know what they think about it. Emmy Quinn, thank you so much for coming on the Persistent and Nasty thank podcast. Mm-hmm. And until next time, lovely listeners. Stay, stay nasty. nasty. <laughs> that was like hard to do in time. 
If you enjoy the Persistent and Nasty podcast and support the work that we do, please like, download, subscribe and review each episode. It really does help us get our message out and our incredible guests heard to as many people as possible.